Welcome to the Exponential Edge podcast with your host, Arya Salur. I'm excited to have you join me on this journey, exploring the forefront of technological advancements and innovation that will shape our future. As a junior at Acton Boxborough Regional High School in Massachusetts and the CEO of SecArmor, a cybersecurity startup, I'm fascinated by the transformative power of technology. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into five key areas that are poised for exponential growth in the next decade. We'll be exploring the realms of cybersecurity, generative AI, sustainability and climate tech, biotech and human longevity, as well as the reshoring of manufacturing. And we'll also go over rising startups disrupting the marketplace. These topics and businesses hold immense potential to revolutionize our world and redefine the way we live, work, and interact. Each episode will feature insightful conversations with experts, thought leaders, and visionaries who are at the forefront of these fields. In just 30 minutes, our goal is to provide you with five signature nuggets of wisdom from our guests. These key takeaways will empower you with knowledge and help you stay ahead in an ever-evolving technological landscape. Without further ado, let's introduce our guest for this week. Hi, everyone. Our guest today is Michael Bastian, founder of his self-named fashion brand and creative director of Brooks Brothers. Hi, Michael. Hi, Aria. How you doing? I'm doing great. How about you? Good, thank you. So I'm actually, uh, for this episode, I'm actually straight away from my regular clothing. And I've actually put on one of, or two of your pieces uh, for this episode. I see. It looks so good. It looks great on you. It does. And so I just wanted to ask you first, uh, could you please give us a brief summary of your career thus far for our viewers? Sure. Sure. I, um, uh, if you start from the start, I've had a long and winding road. I first, uh, well, I went to Babson, Babson College, which is famously uh, a all business school specializing in entrepreneurial studies. Um, and I got out of school and really my objective was just to get to New York City. And I took the first job um, that, that I was offered, which was in retail and then bounced around a little bit through uh, Sotheby's and Tiffany and Ralph Lauren. And I ended up kind of going down a luxury retail road. Um, And that led to being the um, men's fashion director at Bergdorf Goodman, a big, very famous uh, luxury department store in New York City. And then that uh, kind of strangely led to me becoming a Benzwer designer. It, it, uh, It was a weird path since I didn't go to fashion school or study fashion. Um, And then from there uh, had my own line. And then um, now I am a creative director at Brooks Brothers. So it's kind of come full circle. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And where you started, you graduated from Babson College and that has a renowned entrepreneurship program. So how do you feel that the education there shaped your approach to fashion and business? And did you learn any specific lessons or get any experiences from Babson that continue to influence your decisions and strategies today? Yeah, the bad, what Babson teaches you is the importance of an idea. 
you know, like idea, everything starts with an idea and it's very ephemeral. It, it's not tangible. And sometimes people undervalue the importance of that, that idea that starts everything. You know, everything started from uh, an idea that someone had in the shower or somewhere. And sometimes ideas work and sometimes they don't. And it's very important to just roll with it, move on to the next idea. Like knowing when to let go of an idea is just as important as coming up with these ideas. And mm -hmm. Babson very much encouraged us to value our ideas. And the idea, if, if there's something, there's a need in your life for something or something that you think can be improved, uh, there's a million other people out there in the world that are feeling the same way. So your idea is valid and you just have to see it through. So in a, in a weird way, you know, my education is perfect for what I I'm doing now and how my career is pivoted over the years. Um, so, you know, sometimes it was very counterintuitive. Um, here I am with this kind of hardcore business school education in fashion, but um, it actually has served me very well. Mm -hmm. And there must have been a lot of connections that you made that helped you, right? Uh, it's funny, not not really, because oh, when right? I was in school, no, it was... At school, there were. I went to school there in the eighties, and it was very much a Wall Street culture. People wanted to get onto Wall Street, or wanted to be CPAs, or start their own, you know, whatever it is. And um, there weren't a lot of us that wanted to kind of run to New York and live their life and try something different. So yeah. my, my mm -hmm. connections at Babson, I, really the connections that, that got me anywhere were um, just those very easy connections you make in your first couple jobs. I'm still uh, working with some people that I worked with in my first job. You know, you always go back yeah. to those people that helped you along the way or you know are good people and hard workers and interesting and, um, you know, that was all that first group of friends in New York. Yep, that's a great lesson too. It and, really uh, is. I I personally wanted to ask you, like, were there many people who went into fashion at all? No, from your no, 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 no. When I was there, they had just started a retail program, maybe one <laughs> retail course. It, it was, I think, it was tacked on to marketing or something. And now there is like a whole fashion department. Um, and fashion as a business, but at the time, there no. I, I'm I'm really like the outlier in that school. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of funny. <laughs> but there's going to be more coming out of out of the school. Like there was me. There's a there's a lady named Ruthie Davis who has a shoe line, and yeah, we're kind of the the oddballs. But it's going to become more and more normal at that school. Mm -hmm. So you definitely are a trendsetter in that aspect. In that aspect, and, for sure. Mm -hmm. And that's cool. And then you launched your self-named brand, Michael Bastion. Yep. yep. And I wanted to ask you what some of your inspirations to starting your brand were. Well, and, kind uh, of, could you share some of the pivotal moments in those early years? Sure. Building it, brand uh, it's kind of funny because my inspiration for the brand was originally doing the things that 
I wasn't able to find, that I wore myself my whole life in love, but then couldn't find again. And a lot of it was Brooks Brothers stuff. Like at a certain point in Brooks Brothers history, they pivoted more towards uh, tailored clothing, dress shirts, non-iron shirts, and they went away from the sportswear that I grew up wearing, the, you know, Bengal striped shirts and Oxford cloth shirts. And, you know, the, the company went down this road where it was mainly non-iron shirts. It was more commodity than fashion. And it's hard to think of Brooks Brothers as a fashion brand because it really isn't. It's more of almost perfect basics or things that the company actually invented, like the button-down shirt. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, it's it's insane, mm -hmm. and so yeah. I I was frustrated that I couldn't find those pieces again, and I kind of started my own line with the help of Brunella Cuccinelli, um, who I knew through my time at Bergdorf Goodman, um, to to do those pieces I wasn't able to find at a kind of very nice high level. So if you look at my early collections, they were just very normal preppy basics but the fit was perfect it was all made in italy the fabrics were incredible um and it's a good example of if you're looking for it a lot of other people are looking for it and it took off really quickly and i've heard like one of the things that kind of was your specialty is the layering of clothing it's a lot of that and i don't know what it's from maybe it's because i'm from upstate new york like and i don't mean westchester i mean way upstate new york like uh in between rochester and syracuse um almost like canadian weather and it was always cold so you always had like a sweatshirt in your backpack and you know it was a i'm just used to like putting on taking off dialing it up dialing it back um and it just kind of came naturally to me and it kind of became my my thing of a lot of little layers instead of one big layer, maybe, or two. It's a really great style, though. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. And so throughout your career, you've had these successful co collaborations with industry giants like Uniqlo and Yeah. Yeah. So what were some of the uh, highlights of these partnerships and how have they influenced the luxury men's fashion industry in totality? Well, uh, I really loved those collaborations. It gave me an opportunity to work with a big, uh, like Uniqlo in particular, like an international, enormous brand that is pretty much in every country, billions and billions of dollars. Like it's, it, that was so fun plugging myself into their machine, doing my thing, but doing it with their resources it was just incredible and with gant that was more of that that the way it started and the way it ended up were two different things it started because gant a very american company founded in 1949 in new haven connecticut somehow ended up being a european company with european owners very strong in like Germany, Scandinavian countries, but very little presence in America at the time. So they wanted to team up with me because I had a big presence in America. They're an American brand, our styles meshed. And that was fun kind of doing, 
that 50-50 balance of what I like, what they do best, their history, my history. Um, and uh, I really I really love putting myself and putting that hat on with that collab. So, but um, they both were very much of their time. You know, there was a, there was a time in the, like 2010 is when Gantt started. Uniqlo was a little later. That, that was really the beginning of this collab idea where designers would team up with other brands or brands would team up with other brands. And um, it's been interesting. I think it's almost like it's a, it peaked and now I feel like everything was a collab for a while there yeah. and mm -hmm. a drop and, and, and I feel like we're kind of walking away from it. But at the time it was something really new and exciting. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I can kind of relate it to my generation with sneakers. Now every yeah. sneaker is like a collaboration as and well. And a drop and yeah. It, I mean, it's fun because there is a little bit of that, you know, for a limited time only you got to grab it while you can grab yeah. it. So there is that urgency to it, but when everything's a collab and everything's urgent, mm -hmm. nothing is urgent. So, because mm -hmm. there's always going to be another one. So it just stops being special. Yeah, it just stops being special. Mm -hmm. And then the knockoffs are happening too quickly. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I feel like the pendulum's swinging a little bit with that. Mm -hmm. So, something else really interesting that I wanted to talk about is your partnership with HP. And yeah your intersection of high tech and fashion, which was, I think one of the first like big, um, big moments when that happened. It really was. Uh, it was so pretty you talk about Apple your, uh, watch. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's, it's, and it, and it feels like it was yesterday. It wasn't even that long ago, but it was, um, it was something that me and my team were super excited about. We might not have even understood it fully, uh, you know, we're looking down a different road, let's say, than the, the tech road, but uh, that it, it was beginning to intersect a little more at the time. Um, and it just was like, it, it, like I was saying with Uniqlo, where you put yourself into that machine and do your job, but through the lens of this other enormous company, um, it was great working with their design, their design team. And what they were obviously on the tech side of it and knew the function the watch had to do and all of that. And I was on the design side trying to make it feel like an evolutionary link to where we're, we're going um, and make a watch that looked like a watch, not like a device. Um, and the interesting thing about that watch was I was driving one day and I was realizing, well, we're all kind of used to digital and analog devices being seen together. If you drive your car, your dashboard will have digital and analog. And, um, and it was like the lock that opened that door for us that here's how you can humanize this bit of tech by making it something that you're already familiar with, like a car dashboard. So, so we had a, a lot of fun with that. It was great. Mm -hmm. And do you, do you think you could share any ideas about the future of wearables? Wearables um, business. It's funny. I think I think it went too. It, it kind of like went really far with those glasses that had the cameras in them, and 
Yeah. You know, and it got into kind of privacy, legal issues and things like mm-hmm. that. And I, I think the two can coexist, but I don't think they're ever going to fully, I'm not sure they're ever going to fully integrate. Maybe, mm-hmm. you know, you say that and then someone shows you something down the road, but you know, we're talking about the, the coats that automatically get warmer or cooler and the, you know, the fabrics that, that, that somehow change or it, it's, I don't know. It, it's like at a, at a certain point, it ends up looking like a tech device and not like clothing. And I think that's where yeah. it's going to get tough because, you know, we've been predicting how long have they been predicting that we're going to be wearing spacesuits or like everything white or vinyl. And, you know, it just mm-hmm. it, it never really 100 percent changes. It always feels a little like a costume, that idea of what we're mm-hmm. going to be wearing in the future. There's you know, always going to be that personal aspect that can take away from the actual functionality right because i think your clothes are more of a tool to show your personal style and tech and wearables are more of a you know they have a function um and clothing has a function i I, there was a great new yorker article and i quote it all the time and i don't remember who wrote it or said this quote but they were like clothing has very specific functions to keep you uh protected from the elements, so warm or cool or dry. Um, what's the other? To keep you not naked, <laughs> so to keep you covered, and then yeah. to make you cute, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is that intangible, like, where style comes in, that make you feel good yep. about yourself and attractive mm-hmm. and all of that. And, you know, first two are very functional. <laughs> you know, yeah. I... I need something to cover up with, and I need something to help me deal with the elements. The third is where the magic comes in. Something to make me feel better about myself, or different, or clever, or whatever you want to feel. You know, and that's the magic of clothes. The magic of tech is something different. Like how, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm definitely on one side of the fence here. My job is to, you know, make you cute. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, get your emails faster. Mm-hmm. So, like nobody's gonna wear something that can do like a bunch of different things but looks ugly it, exactly yeah ultimately you know but then i every time you say something like that someone will prove you wrong and someone will come up with you know the most amazing wearable that you're dying to wear you know like i love that like i never wanted an apple watch till apple started collaborating with hermes and Hermes gave you those beautiful straps and the different watch face, and suddenly I'm looking at an Apple Watch differently. Um, so you can know that's the one. That's the one rule in this business: you can never say never. You can mm-hmm. never say. Well, I feel like a, that's when, there. like, a lot of times it comes like a fad and then dies down pretty soon. Like people yeah. are like, I just want to try this out, and then they actually get it after a few months. They're like, This isn't actually the next thing. Well, that you're. Great. No, your eye, your eye gets tired of things. That's the, mm-hmm. that's the generator of this business. You always want something new. Yeah. And that's normal. That's the cycle of it. And it's healthy, you know? So mm-hmm. probably the same with tech in some ways. Yep. So just switching gears a little bit, you were yep. also a six-time nominee and 2011 winner of the <laughs> CFDA award. Yep. And you were recognized as one of GQ Magazine's top five best designers. So yep. what do these accolades mean to you personally? 
as well as professionally and how they influence your approach to design in the industry? Um, they were amazing to get, um, but they don't really change anything. They didn't really change anything for me personally. I love that I, I really am proud of myself that I won them. Yeah. And to me, that just means that I was of that moment at that moment. And yeah. you know, the moment, the moment always changes. No one yeah. is kind of in that white hot spotlight forever. The wheel turns <laughs> and you know, you move on to something else. Yeah. Um, what I was proud of is that when the wheel did turn, I didn't give up everything that I felt was, you know, my, my greatest strength, you know, like I designed what I want to wear myself. I can't, I wasn't ever going to become a streetwear designer. I very classic American preppy, whatever, however you want to label it or bucket it. Yeah. And then street came and a lot of my peers suddenly were street designers when they mm -hmm. were classic American or heritage designers. And yeah. I really am proud that I stayed true to myself. And you know, like, it's almost like you stay where you are, you do your thing and the wheel turns around and will, you know, you'll, your time will come again if you stick mm -hmm. to your guns. And I, I almost feel like we're about to enter another, uh, heritage classic hashtag menswear moment where mm -hmm. you know after pandemic after all the sweats after the street um people are getting a little more interested in dressing up a little more and it always mm -hmm. happens you live long enough you you yep. have to recognize the cycles because mm -hmm. especially even in school it's like the last few years has just been streetwear but now people are kind of getting tired of it it's like yeah, it, it's actually getting kind of like tacky. Yeah, I guess. yeah, it's it's really more people are transitioning. It just you, everything clothing. keeps moving, and that's just the reality of the world of fashion. Of you, you get tired of stuff if it's ubiquitous. If it's you know, if it was once hard to find, and you had to get up very early and go online and catch that drop, and then all of a sudden it's in every store and every mall, you can get it you know, online, direct from China, a knockoff that's actually identical. It, it just, it loses, it loses its shine a little bit. So um, then you move on to the next thing. And yes, that's the way it goes. So mm -hmm. you live long so, enough, you see it all. Yep. So transitioning to your, uh, your work at Brooks Brothers, yep. the company has maintained a presence in all the places that Americans shop from Airport, airports to malls to yeah. outlets. Yeah. So could you go over the company's strategies and marketing and each of these different places? Is there any sure. difference between them? Yeah. Oh, there's a great difference. Brooks Brothers, first of all, let's start here, is the oldest American company in continuous yep. existence. From It was founded in 1818. <laughs> so th this company has dressed 45 presidents. Like it... Yeah. It, it's it's insane how far back it goes. And I mentioned briefly earlier, Brooks Brothers invented the button-down shirt. Like, that's like saying I invented bread. That's something that's so ubiquitous in our life that it's hard to realize. Remember that someone had to come up with that idea at one point. Yeah. Brooks Brothers invented the off-the-rack suit, you know, back in the <clears> day. It, 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 the, the company has 
weirdly been very innovative but also very ubiquitous in people's life so it it feels like it never changes but it actually changes yeah. a lot um and invents a lot invented the non-iron shirt there's so much it invented and uh i'm just really proud to be kind of the caretaker of that brand at the moment um and as I said earlier, also, I felt the brand had strayed a little bit away from its core and what made it so special. And for the first three years, I've been there three years now, I've been very focused on getting back all the icons of the brand and making sure they're the best they could possibly be, but also simultaneously trying to attract a new customer. You know, the customer is very loyal, but was aging and very men's focused and very tailored clothing focused. When I started um, sportswear, meaning not a suit, dress shirt, ties, that kind of stuff, sportswear was only like 20%. Now sportswear is 41%, which is a gigantic leap in three years for a brand. And that just means we're going in the right direction. We're addressing the needs of new customers, younger customers uh, who don't have to wear a suit to work every day, might want to wear a suit might uh, like guys like you are going to work looking like you're looking today you don't you some days you might want to wear a tie some days you don't want to wear a tie you can wear it with jeans not so uh if we if we say to ourselves our lane is going to be work focus what you wear to work well what you wear to work is as broad as it could be right now it's like what i'm wearing i actually have worn to work before um and all right, so it's a huge world, and how do we address each of these different countries, different places that people shop, retail versus factory stores? Um, and each one of those channels has to be looked at individually. You know, you can't, what, what Burks Brothers means and stands for, let's say in South America, is different from China and different, certainly different from the United States, where pretty much everybody in the world knows Burks Brothers. Well, everyone in America knows Brooks Brothers, but if you're in China, it's kind of new to you. And also different countries are at different stages and how they go to work. Like China really is a very much a suit and tie country right now. Um, Korea is very much a suit and tie country. Mexico, they, they still very much wear suit and ties. India, uh, an emerging market. And Brooks Brothers is um, really growing quickly in India and I'm really proud of that. But that's a very suit and tie market, you know, not like whereas Europe, America, it's very much you can mix tailored clothing with sportswear. Um, when you're talking about other interesting channels, like you mentioned, the duty free and airport shops, that to me is really interesting because yeah. think of it. You have an hour on your hands. You're wandering around. You don't you can't buy anything that you need to have tailored. You want to, it's almost like I want to grab and go. So we sell a lot of white shirts. You know, I'm going to a business meeting. I need a new shirt or tie um, yeah. or gifts or sportswear or women's does really well and duty free. Um, it's kind of like that captive audience. You know, we're, we're, we, if you travel a lot, you are that person, you know, you have all that time in your hands. You end up buying stuff you might, not normally buy so i'm 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 really fascinated by that particular channel and uh with the 
factory stores, which is what we call our outlets, they they're usually in different markets from our mainline stores. But then you say that every everyone's online now, so your online becomes your flagship store. But people still do like to, particularly with tailored clothing, try it on. You know, see what the fit is. It's very hard to order a suit online and get it right. So, um, you know, you can't look at it like I've got my high-end retail stores and then I've got my less expensive factory stores because like where I grew up in upstate New York, there is a, a Brooks Brothers outlet that's 10 minutes from where my parents live and to them, that's Brooks Brothers, you know? So if you're in New York, you might go to the one on Madison or the one in Rock Center and that's your Brooks Brothers. But you, you just, you can't, think that one is less important than the other they they are your face in that market mm-hmm. so yeah that's a great insight thank you thank and you talking about the evolution of brooks brothers since 200 years ago which you mentioned uh what have been the key factors in this resurgence into the mainstream fashion well, marketplace like i was mentioning sportswear is the biggest like leap up that the brand has taken uh it sportswear is you know ubiquitous now in most markets if again i'm going to put you back in the airport but if you walk around an airport and you look at how people are dressing you realize um the world is becoming a lot smaller everyone's online everyone's seeing things immediately and you used to be able to say oh I, that guy, that's an Italian guy. I can tell by the way his suit fits, how he's dressed, or that guy lives in South America, or that's a Russian guy. And now everyone kind of looks generally the same. It's very hard to, to say. The, the regional style is, is kind of getting uh, standardized, let's put it that way. It's very rare to see someone in a busy airport that feels like, oh, wow, that is really a flash from a different culture. You know, our culture is becoming a little bit more homogenized for better or worse. Um, But, you know, now you have this international business guy uniform that might be a high-end sneaker, a slim cargo, a nice navy blazer, a cashmere turtleneck. you know, and it's not connected to any particular region. It's just, you know, it's become this international rich guy uniform. Um, it's interesting. Yep, because <laughs> it's happened within my lifetime. So, and what do you uh, what do you think about the future of this trend? Do you think it's going to uh, stay this way? Or... Yeah, I I really do. I mean, we're not getting more isolated we're getting more integrated honestly you know look at instagram i follow people in every country and um you know inspiration now flies around so quickly it used to be you'd have a runway show and it would get digested and other companies might take ideas from that you do a runway show now and you have people kind of recreating those looks themselves um, immediately, immediately. And, you know, the reality is you do a runway show, those clothes aren't going to get to the store for another year or six months at the fastest. 
And you also have fast fashion that is taking the idea and turning it around really quickly. So, you know, the ideas come and go like much quicker these days. So it's, it's impossible to stay in front of that, which almost is why I think people are retreating is not the right word, but, but going back to the classics that they know are always going to make them feel good and look sharp. And, you know, sometimes I think it's, you know, whenever the world becomes like kind of unstable and scary, like it is right now that we re re kind of retreat to what makes us feel kind of safe and warm. So, you know, you'll see a lot more cashmere sweaters, let's say, or like cozy blankets in the home world, or, you know, it's, it sounds weird, but I feel wall to wall carpeting is kind of something that I'm very into at the moment. And it's weird because no one has wall to wall carpeting anymore. <laughs> yeah. Everyone used to have it. And now it's hardwood floors and area rugs, but like there's something about carpet in your bedroom that to me feels really right right now you know and those are the kind of ideas we were talking about in the beginning you have to be open to those it feels kind of weird because who wants wall to wall but then it's like well maybe i want wall to wall you know you got to be open to that you got to like trust your instinct so yeah. and just to close us off today do you think you could give us your five key takeaways from our entire conversation oh wow okay one <laughs> one at your college your college is the college you end up going to is very important, but not for the reason you might think, mm -hmm. you know, it might, uh, uh, like I, like I said, I weirdly have had a very counterintuitive career based on where I went to school. Yeah. Um, so I think most of the people I've interviewed actually have. Yes. It, I mean, of course, if you want to be a doctor, you want to be a lawyer, it, that's important. But other than that, it's more opening your mind to the possibility and trusting your instincts and kind of developing the tool, the interpersonal tools um, of how to work with people, of how to work in groups, you know, all of that. That is more important than your major or actually where you're even going. Um, what else? Let's see. Number two, I think you need to always trust your own instincts. If I'm going to give anyone any advice, like, like I said, if you want it, there's a million other people who want it. So trust, trust your instincts. You're not, no one is so out there or individual that they're not feeling the same thing a million other people are feeling. Um, yeah. uh, with collabs, Another lesson, the best thing I ever learned from collaborating is it's not a collab if you go in there and just do your thing 100%. The beauty and the joy of collabs is that 50-50 partnership where you bring half of your skill set and history and then you, you know, kind of polish up your partner's it's, it's almost like a like a marriage in a weird way. Like you 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 can't be the dominant force in inflicting your will you know you got to take what's best about them best about you and then you get something much better at the end of the day um tech infusion i i would take away from that that at this stage 
I still don't see them as a perfect meshing unit. You know, I don't see it because I feel like the functions of both are very specific. So at this stage, I'm not ready to smash them together. <laughs> you know, um, is that four? I think that might be four. And then five, invest in wall-to-wall -wall carpeting because I feel like it's coming back. I just feel it in my bones. Like this is, if you're in the interior world, uh, which is a gigantic business, um, and really reacts to the cultural mood. Um, I don't know. There's something about, you know, the, we, we tend to retreat into coziness when times are tough and we certainly are in a very weird time at the moment. So in the next year, I don't see it getting much smoother. So, but I don't want to end up on a negative note. <laughs> so maybe I'll give you, it'll give you six. Um, and number six is the takeaway. Uh, everyone should take a fresh look at Burks Brothers. Everyone has an opinion about it. If you talk to someone like your age, normally they'll say, oh, it's my dad's favorite brand. <laughs> and that's kind of funny. And we actually put it on a sweatshirt, your dad's favorite brand, um, which I think is kind of shows that we're not taking ourselves too seriously with this. But um, I really... I really want to encourage people, particularly your age, to give it another shot because I think you'll be surprised at what, what you find there. Mm -hmm. yep. Thank you for those. And thanks so much for joining me today on the Exponential Arch Podcast. Thanks oh, for all pleasure. our viewers today. Mm -hmm. And tune in next time uh, to hear us talk about trends and businesses that will see exponential adoption in the future. Thanks, right. Michael. Thank you, Arya. Bye.